This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. Hello, this is Nina Rao, guest podcaster on the Be Here Now Network. I'm joined today by Mirabai Starr, well-known author of Wild Mercy, in discussion with Dina Miriam about her book, The Untold Story of Sita. Sita, the divine feminine presence in the sacred text known as the Ramayana. For more information about Dina Miriam, please visit her website, dinamiriam.com, D-E-N-A-M-E-R-R-E. IAM.com. Her book, The Untold Story of Sita, is available on Amazon.com. Enjoy. Om Bhai Pragata Kumari Bhumi Bidari Janahitakari Bhayahari Atulita chobi bari muni manahari Janakadulari sukumari Sundara sinha sana tehi para asana Kota hutasana dutidhari Shira chatra biraje shashi sangasaje Nijanija kaje karadhari Sura Siddha Sujana Anahini Sana Charevi Mana Samudhai Barashahi Bahupula Mangala Mula Anakula Sia Sunagai The Holy Sita emerged from Mother Earth. She is the benefactor of all beings and dispels their fears. She is most beautiful and tender. Even sages are attracted by her grace. She is very dear to her father, Janaka. She is seated on a beautiful lion throne, bright as millions of wildfires. There is a beautiful umbrella over her head, along with the bright moon. All other attendants were performing their respective duties. All gods, wise ones, and siddhas, seated in their respective air vehicles, showered flowers, 
and sang Sita's praises. So welcome everyone. Uh, those are just a few verses from the Sri Janaki Ki Stuti that we sing in Kenji Dam. If those of you have been there to Neem Karoli Baba's temple up in Kenji, we sing that uh, in the mornings. And I'm so pleased to welcome to our little event today, Dina Miriam, the author of The Untold Story of Sita, and my dear friend Mirabai Starr, the author of many things, including Wild Mercy. I'm so excited. This is such a joy to be with you too. Yeah, I'm loving it. <laughs> Great. And they agreed to come and talk to me today about something that's very close to my heart, um, which is the story of Sita, specifically in the Ramayan. The Ramayan is a sacred text I've actually read in a few different forms over the years, starting from when I was a young teenager in my grandfather's home. And I read a traditional abridged version and uh, over the years have read quite a few other ones, actually, uh, some written by Westerners, including William Buck, some by Ramesh Menon. Um, and then finally, the text that I actually study as part of my practice is the Ramcharitmanas that was composed by uh, Tulsidas, the poet saint. Um, and over the times, and I'm sure many of you have encountered this, if you're at this talk, you're probably interested in this subject, is... Um, how it is that we can fully welcome the divine feminine presence in these leelas in such a way that feels um, fair, <laughs> for lack of an, any other word. Um, and what happened when I read Dina's book was that she put in words a lot of what I was feeling as the underlying foundational story of these sacred texts and that there is a feminine and masculine aspect to everything that is divine and they aren't separate from each other and they're both sides of the same thing at least that's my understanding of it so welcome to Dina welcome to Mirabai <laughs> thank you Nina um Dina she is up in upstate New York, not far from me. Um, I read towards the end of your book, the story of how this story came to you. Uh, I believe you published this book in 2019, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, But the story came to you a few years earlier in 2016, when you were traveling in India for a women's peace initiative. And at then thereafter went on a yatra or a pilgrimage and entered into the story, actually. Can you share with us how that happened? Thank you. And it's wonderful to be here to talk about my favorite subject, Sita and Ram. I had just finished a conference in Varanasi uh, on the theme of Dharma, actually. And a few friends said, uh, we're not far from Ayodhya. Let's take a trip to Ayodhya. And so we got on the train and I wasn't expecting anything. Of course, you know, Ram and Sita are my, my devitas, but I knew that it was a place of great contention and a great um, uh, um, tension within India at that moment around the, the temple. Um, and, but as soon as I stepped off the train and started walking those streets, I just entered another reality. I wasn't seeing the present day Ayodhya. I entered a portal into an ancient past and I started, um, I started feeling the presence of Sita in particular very strongly. I went down to the Sario River and I felt such a deep connection with the river and it just felt like my home. Uh, I came home and I was thinking about it and, and, and wondering what all this meant in my meditation. I was seeing scenes. And then I had another yatra about four or five months later where I was in Kashmir. I was up in Ladakh and then in, in Srinagar. And the last part of that was Jammu. And I went to this ancient um, Vaishnadevi shrine. It's a million-year-old cave where, where um, Lakshmi and um, Saraswati 
and Parvati came together in, in eons ago to, to join their energies to overcome a particularly powerful asura. And that shrine, you only get a few seconds in front of the shrine there deep in the cave. Uh, but I stood there and then I left and I didn't feel anything. As is often the case when you're in a holy place, there's, an, there's a delayed reaction. The next morning before leaving Jammu, I went to the Raghunath temple. Um, we were alone there. Not many people are, are, were in Jammu and um, in terms of tourism. And so I just knelt before the murchis of Raman Sita and it was as if the blessing of Vaishnu Devi hit me and a portal opened and I found myself at the feet of Sri Ram as a child. And it was such a vivid image, you know, uh, uh, looking up at him and, and, um, and I was transfixed for, for days after. I could hardly, I mean, I was with a group of people, it was the end of our, our pilgrimage um, and I could hardly speak. And then when I got home over the next few months, what came about was this untold story of Sita. I found myself back in time. And this is really Sita's story. Uh, the, Ram, the Ramayan is the story of Ram. Sita plays a role in it, but it's really the story of Ram. This is Sita's story. And it's, it's about the impact she had. You know, so often we get these stories from long ago. We don't know what, how did, how did they impact the people around them? I mean, there were people who lived in the palace. There were people who in the villages that they interacted with. What kind of impact did they have? on a one-to-one daily interaction. Um, and so you see Sita um, through the eyes of the people who interact. I, I think it's, it's very important to kind of clear the field about why there are many, many, many ways of looking at the Ramayana. Um, everybody has their own individual relationship with Sri Ram and right? It's a very personal, intimate relationship. There's, there are several things that I wanted to bring out. One is that this is not a story that's over. This is, they are ever living presences. Ram and Sita are living presences active in the world today. And now that we've cleared out certain Kali Yuga mentalities, which was um, the, the repression of, we, of, of women, assigning women a secondary role, we can see the story uh, with greater clarity. The second is this misunderstanding of Dharma. You know, I mean, the excuse, I read Valmiki's version when I was in my early 20s. And I just, the last kanda, I just said, yeah, I don't know when that got in there, but that's <laughs> not the way I understand the story. I later heard from scholars that it was written in a different meter and was added later. But that's not commonly known. People think of that as part of the original story. It was added later. And then my question was, why? Why was it added? Why did society feel the need to do this? to a woman who's known to be the, the incarnation of Narayani, one of the great, the Shakti of the universe. <laughs> and so, and then I've heard many men say, Rama had to do his duty, Dharma. Dharma is love. What is duty, so, duty is love. So I, the idea I, that Ram would do something that's not in keeping with Dharma, that's not in line with Dharma was so absurd to me. It's as much to rescue Ram from this misunderstanding as it is to rescue Sita. That's my, that was mm. my feeling mm. of this. Ram's, uh, Ram, the beauty of Ram has to come out by his, his acknowledgement of who Sita was and her role in the unfolding of this, of this story. So Dina, is it okay if I read a couple of uh, sentences from the book? And this is actually your opening sentence. It is somewhere between dark and daylight at the hour when the mind is stillest when dreams submerge into the ocean of the mind, but before the mind becomes aware of the outer world, before the stars retreat and the sun sends the harbingers of its ascent, before the birds begin to stir, but after the night creatures have gone to rest. It is at that time that the inner world lights up our vision and we can see things normally we do not see and hear with our human ears, see with our eyes and hear with our human ears. So I want to ask you, um, when you entered into this portal, did the story come to you in such a way that you were able to, how did you later relay it? How did you come about writing the book after that? 
I relived the story. I, I, I have to say, I didn't want to finish this book because I was living in that era. I, I lived the life of that, um, of that servant. And so I often say to people, I can't tell whether this is a past life we call or whether I was channeling the life of another, but I became that servant through whose eyes the story is told. The, the vision that you describe <clears throat> happened to me when I finished the book. I finished the book and in all the years that I've been a devotee, I've, I've not had a vision of, of Raman Sita. But after the book was finished, I had this experience um, where I was actually, you'll appreciate this, maybe I was in Costa Rica about to begin a program. And um, I finished the book and here I was with my, you know, young ecologist about to begin a program. I go to sleep and I wake up like four in the morning having this, having been in the presence of Raman Sita. And to me, when this happens, it's a confirmation. You know, I often look for signs. And, and what, I, what I'm seeing is it real, you know? I mean, I, I, I feel that I'm a scribe, They're just kind of recording what I'm seeing and hearing. Uh, and, you know, I need to spend a lot of time in solitude and in isolation in order to really fully immerse myself uh, in, that, in that space, in that lo loka. Um, uh, and, and this is what I did. So a, a lot of these scenes came to me in meditation um, as if I was just back in time, uh, reliving that life of that servant, Manakshi. Um, and then, you know, I, I felt as, as the women sages came through, Arundhati, Lokamudra, Khyati, uh, I, I was just amazed to see what I was seeing. I mean, I, I was amazed, you know, it was like being in the middle of a movie, watching it, and it's like, what's going to come next? What's the next thing going to be? You know, uh, um, and so for about two years, I kind of lived like that. One of the things that um, always come to mind every time I read these sacred te texts um, is that so much of what happens happens within nature. You know, even when you're reading any of the traditional texts, for example, in the Ramcharitmanas, uh, when uh, Sri Ram and Sita are exiled to the forest, much of the descriptive texts um, has to do with these, you know, the birds, the animals. And when Sita is taken away, um, Ram expresses his grief by the very life of the forest being withdrawn, you know, when she's taken away by Ravana. And what I loved when I started to, when I read your book, was that from the very beginning, Sita is, the story, is, like you said, is told from her vantage point and uh, her story and how she's born from the earth. We know that Sita, in fact, means furrow of the earth. But you go on to talk about her relationship with nature, her ability to go down to the Sarayu River and actually receive knowledge from the river as if she is the goddess. Uh, her wanting to look back at where we actually get our food from, you know, taking the very soil from the earth and rubbing it on her face so that we can connect with the place where we're getting our very, our vitality, you know, our, our life force. And um, I, can you just talk a little bit more about how that experience was for you when you were experiencing her and how she traversed this realm. The story takes place during the Treta Yuga. So we all know that. It's commonly known. What does that really mean? What was the consciousness of the Treta Yuga? That's something that has always interested me in trying to understand what the consciousness was at higher uh, periods, eras. And so when I, when I was able to peer back into that time period, I saw that there was not a disconnection from the natural world. People did not feel this disconnected from it. Um, the, the, the sense of separateness, of, of ego dominance had not yet evolved. That came with the declining ages where the sense of, of dominance and um, a separateness from the web of life. So everything was alive. The rivers had an energy, a living energy to them. Everything was consciousness. 
the mountains, the forest, the animals, there, there were ways of communicating with the animals um, through an exchange of images. So there is a scene in there where, where uh, uh, one of the animals had killed a, a young boy. It was a lion or a tiger, I think it was a tiger. And they come in and, and that tiger, the tigress appears at a Sita's uh, cottage. And she has a, an inter interchange with this. And to me, that was a sign of the first um, tension developing between the animal and human kingdom. We were integrated into that world in the higher ages. And now we have fallen so far away from that that it's hard to even imagine what that was like. Um, we, 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 you know, we're just, the, the, we've deadened the world. It's, the, the world has become dead matter to us. We're in a higher consciousness, it's all living energy. What is matter? It's energy, it's consciousness. So um, Sita, and then you're able to work with the consciousnesses. So everything, and, and I learned so much from the experience of writing this book. I, as Mirabai says, I fell in love with Mother Earth again. I fell in love with everything. I mean, Sita was there teaching me what it was like to be so, to be, to, to not even, I mean, even the word connection is not the right word, but to be so integrated into all of the life energy uh, and to feel yourself uh, just a part of the whole life energy of the universe. And even with the stars, how they used to watch the stars, you know, she knew at a certain point when, when, um, Rishi Brigu had, he's the one who had issued the curse long ago to Narayan, and they were waiting for him to achieve liberation before that was when the whole thing would be over. And so they were watching the stars. And so the whole universe was just part of one consciousness at that point. And that's very important for us to, to try to remember, because it's in our collective memory. We all hold that memory. We were all alive at that time. You know, we, we didn't appear yesterday. I mean, we've been here for a long time. So we all have that memory within us, but it's buried so deep under life upon life and life and life that we have to we have to kind of open up again to the memories of what it's like to 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 be part of the whole and and to expand our consciousness so that we're aware of the whole. It was a great teaching for me to see that and and see to you know just um, that was the essence of who she was. I mean, she was the mother, not just of. Of, of all the humans that came in contact with her, but all the animals and the plants. And, you know, she talks about one plant going extinct, but another plant coming coming out. So it's like everything, she was conscious of all the different forces at work within the plant and animal worlds. Um, and so, so it was, a, to me, it was a great teaching. She, we we actually get to hear instruction from her, you know, when we cut down one tree, plant two trees. And um, and when we take things from the forest that we should ask permission, you know, all of this is a creates a sense of mindfulness about where we are, how we are interacting with the rest of the world. Agriculture was a very big I mean, at the time that they were living, previously in the Satya Yuga, you did need to cultivate the earth because there was plenty. Uh, there was plenty of food, um, um, just wild, you know, within the with the grains and the and the and the and the vegetables and the fruits and the nuts. But with the declining ages and with the with the decline of the forest uh, and the growing human population, food became scarce, so agriculture was needed. So we see, we see how Janak Baba was pioneer new agricultural techniques, new ways of using river water to, to irrigate um, the fields. And, and a lot of, I think, what Sita and Ram were doing when they were moving south through, through um, areas where there was no cultivation was teaching people cultivation of the earth, teaching people to work in harmony with, with the earth, forces of the earth. One of the things that also came to my mind uh, as I was reading this was... Um, so much of my practice is chanting of mantras and prayers, my own personal practice. And it seemed to be a, the way in which all the beings in this story, particularly Sita, uh, were able to connect with their environment, connect with their own insights, connect themselves with everybody or every being around them. Um, at some point when she was studying with sage Gargi. Gargi says to her, um, 
the that the power of mantra actually comes from the fact that the mantras are sound vibrations and everything that surrounds us the world in which we live is also vibration and so when we practice with particular mantras tell me correct me if i'm wrong um that we can then attune ourselves or align ourselves with a particular uh, vibration is that correct that was knowledge that that was held in the higher yugas um and that's why they didn't need to cultivate the land because vibration could create that's also true in the higher realm, in the celestial realms Vib- uh, through, through vibration you 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 can manifest things i mean we know that even with the great yogis of today very few are there but they can manifest things through the use of vibration the sound this was this was known at that time in the treta yuga and when you think of the story of sage anasuya how um, through her compassion she saw that there, were, there was um, an area where there was no river um, and they, she, she created a river, uh, the, the Mandakini River, two Mandakinis, one high in the Himalayas, but this one was lower uh, in the plains um, near Chichikut. Uh, and so she manifested that river. Um, and so through, through vibration, uh, uh, they, w- they were able to manifest things, you know, and that's how the balance was, was kept. Similarly, that's how the curses were given through through, this, through the power of the sound of vibration. Curses could be given. It could be used for benefit or it could be used for ill. Uh, and this is one of the dangers of the time because you had a strong, uh, strong uh, energy like Ravana, who could use that same power for destructive means. I think there's a point um, within that where you talk about. Um, they at that point felt it was a good idea that actually councils should be formed where um, sages weren't able to deliver curses or blessings in order to, um, as a reaction to misdeeds. Rather, people should decide and also people should have a chance to redeem themselves if any misdeeds had happened. So it was seemed to be like the seed of a democratic society, uh, from what I could tell. So I want to kind of go into, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say exactly what I, what, what, what surprised me is, you know, we're in the West used to thinking democracy began in Greece, which, which was very late actually in the scheme of things. But actually with Janak Baba, he was setting up because he was not particularly interested in governing. He wanted people to, to, to um, take responsibility for themselves and learn how to use discrimination and make decisions. So he set up these small councils and he was very influential on Ram from what I had seen. Um, and Ram brought a lot of this back. I mean, from what the, the civilization, we, you know, we think of Ram as being the initiation of a new civilization. There were a lot of seeds in this civilization that, that came to flower much later, but there were, there were many things that he laid the foundation for. Uh, and I think that, that we need to recognize how much he achieved because he he came to be a king. He came to be to govern, to, to seed a new civilization, um, not just to be a hermit somewhere, you know, uh, with you know passing on um, his his knowledge, but to to really spread these to seed these ideas into the human mind. And I think that's how the development of civilization works, how evolution works. You have these avatars, these great beings, who seed concepts into the human mind which take hold and it may take centuries for them, for these experiments to really come to flower. So that actually uh, leads me into uh, the coming together of Sita and Ram. You know, as I was reading the story, I understood that Sita spent a lot of time with her father, Janak Baba. So all that he was, he was, he was governing his people and she was imbibing that knowledge and at the same time, he had a great respect for her because he could see her ability to connect with other beings and see into them as well. And she took that, all that she learned from her father, and brought it to Sri Ram. So one of the things also that you mentioned uh, early before you even start to tell your story is that as you're telling this story, you're telling the story of Sita as an equal to Ram, not as an appendage of Ram's. 
So um, as I was reading my original Ramcharit Manas, um, people who know in the in the Ramayana that Ram and Sita meet at this uh, Swayamvar, which is a traditional a ritual ceremony where a um, suitors come to to take the hand of the of the bride. In this case, it was Sita. But it becomes very clear that um, Ram and Sita already knew that they were going to meet each other somewhere from a previous time. And in the Ramcharitmanas, they talk about how Sita knew it was an old love. And uh, Dina, in your book, you talk about when she is in the forest and she goes into very deep meditation and she meets Sri Ram before she actually goes to the to the Swayambar. So could you share a little bit more about, you know, the, re- the reason I want you to kind of maybe help us understand a little better, because in the modern telling of the stories or the, the, the additions that we see right now, it appears that Ram is making all the decisions. Sri Ram is making all the decisions and things are happening to Sita. But my understanding of the story is that everything was known to her already from the beginning. And it was, uh, it was because that the two of them agreed together that this was the path that, they, that, that the story was going to take. So could maybe you share a bit more about that? And Mirabai, please also um, ask and guide as, a, as you wish. You know, um, I, I, throughout the writing of this, was very conscious that we're talking about the avatars of Narayan and Narayani. Now, Narayani is, the, is a Shakti of the universe, one of the great uh, powers of the universe. She, she would not take it, and she would not incarnate unless there was a critical role for her to play uh, and that she was, she was deciding that role. Nothing is ever decided for her. She is, she is shaping that, uh, uh, that evolution, that story, along with Narayan. And the whole, of course, there, there are two big questions that arise in the traditional telling of the story. One is uh, her going into Lanka, which the way I see it was something she had to do. Um, uh, there could not have been a war had she not gone into Lanka because there were, there were rules of um, you don't just attack. I mean, there has to be a just cause. Uh, and and somebody needed to work on, uh, from the inside uh, to help uh, um, feed information to Ram, but also to work on the on the. Don't forget, Ravan was a beloved devotee. They're not looking to destroy him. They're looking to help him, to awaken him, to 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 help him rise into his true potential. So so she was working with him to to awaken some of his memories and to try to to to. Um, absorb some of the karma that had taken place because a lot of negative energy had gathered in that place. And in her time of tapasya, I saw that year that she was there, it was a time of intense tapasya. And you know, how these stories come to us. So the story came to us that she had to walk through the fire for purification. The way I see it, it was the, the tapasya, the heat of her tapasya. When mom found her, she was sitting with the heat of her tapasya. And, and it appeared to be as if she was consuming all the negative energy of Lanka that had been released in the war. And so uh, understanding the role of Shakti is not easy because it's a subtler role. You know, the, 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 the outer role on the field with weapons and all that, killing this one and that one, it's much easier for, a, for the general mind to, to understand that. But the role of Shakti is, is, is less visible. It takes place on inner fields. And one has, I mean, I think that our society has reached the point now where we can talk about more openly, but I think for a long time, it couldn't be talk, talked about openly. Um, the, the, the collective mind wanted to see Sita as, as the uh, weaker feminine fin- uh, figure that had to be saved, her hero comes to save her. That's what the collective mind wanted. And that's what the collective mind, how they interpreted the whole thing. But that's not serving us at this moment. That's not what our society needs or wants. Um, and there is this desire to understand and to, to, to acknowledge the Shakti energy because our society has been so out of balance for so long. 
for millennia, really, uh, we've been out of balance. So now we have the opportunity to bring out the higher masculine, which Ram is the perfect manifestation of, and the higher feminine, the sacred feminine, which Sita is the manifestation of. And there are very few examples in history. I mean, Mirabai, you can tell me of all the saints, there are fair, very few examples where you have this equal balance of the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine, the highest ideals of the masculine and feminine coming together as a, on a world stage. It's one of the few examples of that, which is what makes um, their relationship so very, very precious. Um, I mean, I believe it was also true of Krishna and Rukmini. I'm now writing a book on Rukmini and she's even more hidden. <laughs> Nobody knows anything about her. She's been erased. Let's get rid of her. We don't know about her. <laughs> but but um, the story of Raman Sita is so precious because it is uh, it, it is an example of this perfect balance between the higher masculine and feminine energies. Yes, I love that, Dina. And and I I think you're right that this is a time where we're really reclaiming women's stories across the spiritual traditions. You, like I, have been very much involved in interfaith and interspiritual dialogue and, and more than dialogue experience for many years now. Um, but what it, what has occurred to me over the years of doing that kind of, it, these interspiritual explorations is that across the landscape of the spiritual traditions, the, the experience of men and um, men's version of spiritual uh, practice and scripture has all been the, the dominant paradigm. And, and so all of the scriptures that we love, that we read together in these inter, interfaith gatherings, they're all written kind of by and for men. And so I think that, that you're, you're making this effort to not just imagine Sita's story, but to really enter into it is exactly what, what we're needing right now to reclaim the, the women's version of the, the precious, most beloved spiritual uh, archetypes and stories of all times. I mean, and I, I think that we're doing that with Mary Magdalene in the Christian tradition is a lot of people are trying to, to reclaim her as being the equal of Rabbi Jesus in first century Palestine, you know, that she was teaching by his side with equal power and equal wisdom and that her story was buried in, intentionally, but that the true story is that she was his equal. Or Miriam, the sister of Moses, you know, was the one who led the Israelites through the parting of the Red Sea as they moved from bondage to liberation. It was Miriam and the women who led through the waters with, with chanting and with timbrels, drums and, and tambourines and singing. And, and I was thinking of when you were speaking, I was thinking about Fatima, the daughter of the prophet Muhammad. And when um, Nina was talking about your, in your book, Nina, when you, when you speak about, about Sita bringing the knowledge she learned from her father to her husband, being that transmitter of, of that deep, deep wisdom that was needed for the liberation of, of humanity and how Fatima in the, in the stories of the life of the prophet Muhammad was very much beloved by her father and was probably in some ways the best suited to carry on his lineage, but because he didn't name, you know, successor, that's where the war of the Sunni and the Shia began and has continued over the centuries, but Fatima was the one that the, the Prophet Muhammad not only instilled his deep, deepest wisdom in, but saw as the wisest one in the room at all times, you know? So I just think that together our reclaiming women's stories right now is not just a matter of rebalancing the power imbalances of five millennia, millennia or whatever it's been probably much longer, but is vitally needed to co-create this new world. And so I bow to you for doing this, Dina. And, and I just have to say that while you were going through all this, I was with you, I was visiting you and I was with you in a couple of different situations 
you know, and, and before this book came to be, you taught me so much about the, the power of reclaiming Sita's story. In fact, I write about that in Wild Mercy. I write about you talking to me about Sita long before this, this book was finished and um, how much of an impact that has had on my efforts to reclaim women's wisdom and women's stories. So thank you. And I also write about being with you in Costa Rica because that was such a transformational experience uh, for me of, of working with these youth activists that you, that you so lovingly mentor and, uh, through, the, through the years and <laughs> over across the planet. <laughs> you are like the embodiment of the Earth Mother, Dina Miriam. Tell us about these, tell us about these youth, Dina. The past five or six years, uh, organizing gatherings of environmental activists who have a strong spiritual practice on every continent. We've gone to Africa, Latin America, uh, and I think, Mirabai, you were the one for the Americas with Latin Americans, yeah. Right. Uh, Asia, uh, all over Europe, Middle East, trying to find those young people who have a deep spiritual practice and also looking to, trans, to, 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 to transform the world, focusing on environmental issues. And we have found among them, oh, a handful, maybe a dozen or so who are really deep spiritual practitioners, some in China, some of the, the most um, uh, advanced spiritually are the, the Buddhists that we found in China. Um, and, and, and it's been, Wonderful working with these young people because they're um, they're they're very much wanting to bring together the inner and the outer. You know, uh, I think a lot of people in my generation turned away from outer work uh, to, to focus on the inner spiritual. It's like you know, we're going to tune out the outer world and just focus on our own uh, inner development. But there comes a point when you can't do that. The world is in such crisis. <laughs> that those of us who have a spiritual practice are kind of called um, to help in any way we can, in a million different ways to, to be of service, right? Um, but my focus has been on, on, on the earth and we've found people working, you know, working with coral, working with marine, working with forests, working with all kinds of ways. Um, and and to, in, in my earlier years, there was a real divide between the environmental and spiritual worlds. They just didn't, there was no, interaction between them. Environmentalists thought we were useless and the spiritual people didn't care much about what they were doing. That's come together in this younger generation. Younger generation, I mean, people in their 30s and maybe early 40s uh, who have some experience now and understand that no real transformation comes without the inner spiritual work. Uh, and so um, we have a wonderful group in India. And so now we're doing Zoom calls with them because we haven't met in person for a while. Um, but but uh, this has been the work that we've been doing for my organization, GPIW. I've withdrawn more into the writing of books uh, and allowed, you know, other people to do that work now nearby. So I'm kind of like off the interfaith track. <laughs> I've been for a while. <laughs> well, the other thing I found that's so significant, Dina, about the, these gatherings of young people is that often they live in areas where their very lives are in peril for speaking out speaking out against multinational corporations and, and on behalf of the earth. So it's not just this passion for, for um, healing the planet, but it, they're literally in danger, their lives are endangered by virtue of their standing up and, and speaking out. And they carry such grief in their hearts, not only for the suffering of our mother, the earth, but for all the people that they know who, have actually lost their lives um, because of either the effects of climate change or literally have have been killed or disappeared. So it's it's really powerful. Work. One of the themes that comes up again and again is I would say one of the it's one of the major themes is is shifting from a mindset of the earth as being matter uh, uh, to to consciousness. So it's the sacred earth story that people from all traditions, young people from all traditions are embracing. Um, but I also, I also want to speak for a moment about Dharma because that's being a big um, 
concern of mine. I mean, the, the understanding of Dharma, um, if, we just, if we divorce Dharma from love, then what are we left with? It's, 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 it's um, you know, the, 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 there's several key messages that came to me from this book. One, we talked about the sacred earth. The other was love is the foundation of, of all of creation. That, that this is what keeps everything going and that Dharma is in alignment with this love, which is why it's inconceivable to think, absolutely inconceivable to think that Ram would banish this Devi who has sacrificed so much. It's just not even within the realm of conception. So that should just go. <laughs> Agreed. You know? And, and this understanding of Dharma as, as duty, well, you know, what is, what is the highest form of duty? It's, 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 it's um, serving the universe um, with love and recognizing that love is the, the force that, 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 uh, that energizes everything, that the underlying force of everything. That is the key message of Ram and Sita. And that is what they showed so beautifully in the life together. And that is what Sita displayed to everything around her, everything that she touched was this powerful force of love. And I think that's the only thing that can transform the world. We have to make it real. Um, it's funny that in some circles you can't even use that word, love. <laughs> One of the things you said earlier um, when we were chatting, Dina, is that um, the forces of Ram and Sita is not a, a, a legendary tale, that they're very much present now. They are presence. Um, so can you say a little bit about that? That was another big revelation to me, is that I found myself living with Sita and, and with Ram as well, because anything to do with Sita has to do with Ram. I mean, one can't separate them. Where there's Sita, there's Ram. Where there's Ram, there's Sita. And, you know, I've, I've been a devotee since my young years, but their presence with me was, was a totally new experience as I entered this portal. Um, and, and I realized that they are actively engaged in the world now. And this whole revival of the understanding of the earth as a living consciousness, I believe that's Sita's work. I believe that Sita is awakening this, um, this memory in us because it, we all have these collective memories. Um, we have so much within us that we just live on the very, very surface of our consciousness. And if we could tap, if we could remember everything, we could remember everything that we've been through all the way to the back, uh, to the beginning, where there is no beginning, but <laughs> far back in time, uh, we would recapture a lot of what this higher consciousness was. Um, and so I, I think that we should, when we turn to Ram and Sita, it, it, should be a, it should be that we are turning to living presences, invoking their help collectively with the earth right now, individually in our lives. Um, I, I, I find increasingly Sita's presence uh, she's very, very active today. More and more people are, and it seems to be a new understanding of her, uh, and not just me, but with other people writing about her now. So she seems to be uh, um, uh, active with a lot of people right now. Yeah, for sure. Um, one of the other uh, things that Sita talks about in the book is also the um, the respect that's given to girls and also how they're... Um, uh, that gurukuls should be established for girls to study as well. And, you know, the, the, the loss of that, the loss of educating women and kind of relegating them to a different place, that shows up in the story as well as you tell it. Um, I want to just quote one thing that you wrote, because maybe you don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Only edited like a hundred times. Um here we go. Now, Ram says to Sita, No force in the universe can overpower you, Sita, for it is your love that sustains not only me, but also all of the universes. I really love that. You know, the whole idea of wisdom and love together is how um, is the path of Dharma, actually. I have to say that every time I read the book, I cry. I, I cry at many different parts of the book. 
Um, to me, I guess the most moving of the whole thing is when um, Sita's about to leave the earth. And of course, Ram comes to, to take her. And um, her, her attendant, Soma, says, Mata, you're going to leave. And she turns to her and says, how can I leave the world when I am the world? You know, there is no leaving the world. There's no place for Sita to go. And, um, but there are many times, parts in the book, and one of the most touching for me is when Ram says that, that Sita is the force of love that, that maintains, maintains everything. I mean, to me, just, just to get a glimpse of, their, of that relationship between the highest masculine feminine energies is what we need to aspire, aspire toward, you know? Individually, we need to awaken that within ourselves and collectively as a society. Um, you know, that they are an ideal. And interestingly, this book has been translated into Chinese um, and now into Portuguese and into German um, uh, and to many languages in, 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 in uh, regional languages in India. But it's the Chinese, interestingly, who are really gravitating to the story. I mean, of course, in India. But, um, I, you know, when I first was approached about translating into Chinese, I thought, well, they don't know this story. It's not deep in them. How are they going to respond? But there's so few stories of, 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 the, of the woman Devi, of the, of the female Devi, in such a way that you can really make it personal and relate to them. And I realized that there's a hunger for that. Everywhere, there's a hunger for that, for this, for this, um, for the, to, to relate to this. To the Davy, to be in relationship with the Davy. I'll just say that for me, the greatest takeaway from the story, as you told it, um, was Sita's incredible trust in her own heart. She trusted everything that she felt and uh, though times were difficult, like when she's kidnapped by Ravana, you know, she, as you said, her work, her job was to work on the inner levels and help his mind release. Um, but the illusory part of his mind was so strong that she had to face that also and understand that she, you know, she had to really work with that a lot. And she used the tools of her practice, which in this case was repeating the name of Ram. <laughs> To, to continue to hold on. and um, But she had so much confidence in, in her own intuitive understanding of things. And that's what really came through for me. That's interesting that you say that. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. I, I, I hadn't thought about it in that way, but I think that's a lesson again for, for, for all of us. I mean, I think everything that happened to Sita is a lesson for all of us. And we all need to have greater confidence in our intuitive abilities, in our perceptions. Uh, you know, it's like we get so much negation from the world of our, uh, Mirabai, you'll, you'll know this, but the mystics, we get so much negation from the world of our visions, of our perceptions. And we have to have confidence uh, because we are living in a, a rather darkened time where this is not commonly accepted uh, to be to be um, in 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 um, my current book, I'm you know talking about the Naga realms and the Gandavas, and I'm thinking, what are people going to think about that? <laughs> Gandava realms, <laughs> they exist. <laughs> they exist. You got to talk about them. We should be able to talk about all of it now because people have to get used to hearing about this. And you're right, Sita. She, she she never questioned, you know. When, when um, she had a lot, she had because she was in she was in she was in tune with who her, her her reality of who she was. You know, I've often wondered about this: is the avatar fully conscious of being of being who that avatar is? You know, uh, was Ram fully conscious of being Narayan? Um, I I don't know the answer to that. But I think that there's a level, I mean, there has to be a film of illusion when, 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 when a, a, a powerful force takes a human body and a human mind, there has to be a film of covering that prevents one from truly knowing the, the expanse of one's nature. But, but there's, not, there's not falling into delusion. At some level, one is aware 
that avatar is aware of, of, of the true nature of the true, of the true um, identity. Certainly in the story of, um, uh, of Sri Krishna, he was aware. Um, you know, he was definitely aware. And in the Ramcharitmanas, Tulsidas goes on to say there was no difference between Ramchandra and Sri Ram. Like to him, they were the one and the same being and they both knew that. They both knew that, yeah. But they have to play the human drama, right? <laughs> they have to play the human drama. I mean, those of us who have been in the presence, you know, of the masters, right? The, the, the great ones, right? With me, with Yogananda, with you, Maharaji, even if we weren't in the physical presence, we know what it's like to be in the presence, right? They they worked at every single level. I mean, you know, they, there was no delusion about the physical being that you fixed. <laughs> Everything could be uh, turned from one thing into another. And so um, that is the mystery. That is the mystery of, of the avatar, right? So um, I'll just close by, unless you'd like to add anything, um, one of the things that also struck me in the end uh, is when Sita is in Lanka and she's with Mandodari. And Mandodari is having uh, trouble convincing Ravana about what he needs to do. And Sita is able to talk to Mandodari in such a way. And she says, one's responsibility is to one's own dignity. And, and she you know, she says to her that while she is a fully devoted wife, Mandodari is devoted to Ravana. She has allowed Ravana to cap capture her mind completely so that she is not able to activate and trust in her own feeling. So that was, that was another important thing I felt like she conveyed uh, to Mandodari and it helped to understand the relationship of the female entities in the story as well. I, really I think it, she questioned, she says, you know, what is freedom? Who's really free here, right? Sita was totally free, even though it appeared that she was a captive, whereas Mandodri was held captive by her husband mentally, even though she had the freedom of movement. Can I add one thing before we end? Please. I'm thinking about Hanuman and his, his place in this story. And how if Ram and Sita being separated and then being reunified is the masculine and feminine aspects of the Godhead being sundered and then reunited, reintegrated, Hanuman is the instrument or the passageway or the, the um, what would you call him? He's the... Yeah, he's the instrument of reunification of the masculine and feminine and, and bringing it back into wholeness, bringing the universe back into balance and back into wholeness. And Hanuman is the embodiment of service. So I'm feeling like in the story for all of us, if we hope to reunify the, mascul the sundered masculine and feminine aspects of, of the Godhead of reality, it is through selfless loving service that that we can do that remember like just we're just a bunch of monkeys doing the with our superpowers we've forgotten and we're doing the best we can to to rise to the call of restoring balance to the universe the balance of love that is as you say dina the dharma so i just want to invo invoke our beloved hanuman as we bring this to a close course. <laughs> the story is not complete without Hanuman, but I dare not speak about Hanuman in the presence of a devotee of Maharaji. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's here for us, that's for sure. Yeah. And helping us, guiding us along the way. So um, I'll say one last thing, Dina, from your book. Um, you talk about why Ram chose to take birth. And um, Soma says, the character Soma says, um, 
That is why he has come to earth, Soma. Or maybe it's not who Soma who says it, but that is why he has come to earth, Soma, to release the love that resides in all. That is who he is. That is the purpose of his being. So the path of the Dharma being love is love not being given to us, but to help us acknowledge our own essential nature, which is that of love. The love which is which is encased in all creation. I mean, when you think of the way we treat the animal and plant worlds now is anything but love. But in the higher ages, and we have to recapture that, um, all life forms are, are, are expressions of love and we, we treat them and we are, the, we are the, the, the species who should recognize that and, and give love so that we awaken the love in all. And it, you know, that's, the, that's the transformation and that's where Ram and Sita can help us right now at this moment, uh, to change the way we interact with each other and with the whole web of life, all the life forms that exist. That's where we need to call upon them now to help us make this, this shift in consciousness. Sure. And I think on a very practical level, um, you know, we have, you were talking about the environmentalists on one hand and the spiritual, you know, people on the other hand, and somehow they weren't able to align uh, inside themselves or with each other. Um, but in terms of conservation or environmental justice, which are two different things um, in the world today, I think it's very important for those who are trying to conserve nature, which I think is a very important thing. It's something we cannot recreate. So whatever is left on this earth needs to be kept intact as much as possible. But we also have to recognize that um, we've created this gigantic human population <laughs> that needs to get fed. And we have to find a way to um, sustainably grow our food and in order to feed everyone so that we can really live as a whole. And I think because sometimes one negates the other and it doesn't have to be that way. Well, that's when you don't look at it holistically. When you just look at things piecemeal, our, our, our nature at this point is to look at things piecemeal. You solve this problem, but then you create that problem. We have to look at the whole system and how to make the whole system work harmoniously and flourish. Um, food, is, food is going to be a big issue, you know, with the growing population and with uh, climatic changes that will shift where food can be grown. And we're going to have to look at the whole animal issue of, you know, uh, how, what, what we eat um, uh, and, and shift toward a plant-based diet. So I think that there are a lot of challenges that we have to deal with right now. I mean, you know, we can live in, you know, we, 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 we can talk about things at a very high level, but then we have to come and implement them in the world. Um, and so we have to deal with these challenges of feeding people. Which means people talking to each other. Yes, which means people talking to each other. In a way that we can hear each other, and, you know, and, and... Not demonizing each other. Anyway, so that's where the love lies, as far as I can see on a, on the, on a daily... Yeah. It's a lot of work to do, and I, and I, and I uh, have a lot of respect for these young people who have a lot of energy to do the work. Well, we're here to help them. We're here to, guide, to help them and guide them. Pointers. It's been wonderful to be with the two of you. Yes. It, it's always wonderful to, to go into Sita Loka. <laughs> to bring Sita Loka here. <laughs> well, yeah. thank you for making her available to us. And the book, besides being really important from a Dharmic um, standpoint, it's really fun to read. Really well done. There are a lot of stories in there. A lot of stories. Yeah. Okay. So um, thank you both for being here. I'm glad we could have this little satsang and little discussion. Thanks for having us, Nina. Yeah, great. So good to see you both. Nice to actually finally talk with you, Dina. Nice to meet you too. Someday yeah. we'll meet in person when we can, again, meet in person. <laughs> we can meet in person. Okay. Same with you, Mirabai. New yes. Mexico, here I come. Oh, good. <laughs> Yay, Nina. Yeah. 
take care remember i will we'll we'll stay in touch definitely thank you both This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.